Isaiah 59 this evening. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. And I need a Bible. My, my pulpit Bible went a-missing. Isaiah 59. I was speaking. I really do need a Bible, bud. <laughs> Thanks, brother. Um, I was speaking to Pastor Tim today. Pastor Tim Brown, who's doing our men's retreat next month, and it really is just a month away. And uh, he asked me, when, when I invited him to, to do the retreat, he asked me, do you have a theme? And I said, I, I will have a theme as soon as you tell me what the theme is. I, I, don't, I don't like to assign books or theme. I'm, I, I think I have once when the Lord really specifically, concretely laid something on, not just my heart, but the heart of several leaders simultaneously. But in, in general, hey, you're going to teach. I'd rather you hear from the Lord what he wants you to say. And it was kind of cool because uh, he said, yeah, the Lord is giving him a theme. He's giving him a direction. And one of his messages is actually going to be from Isaiah 56, circling back we, where we were a few weeks ago, talking about foreigners and eunuchs. And, and he's going to go there for the purpose of pointing out that those that were set aside by God, those who were uh, put outside of temple worship for a time, were not forgotten by God. And, and that's uh, going to be his theme for the retreat, is not forgotten by God. And, and I thought it was neat, not just because we were in Isaiah 56 uh, just recently, but because it's very much the theme of tonight's chapter as well. We're returning to, to God speaking words of encouragement to Israel. Words, words of encouragement, I haven't forgotten you. I haven't abandoned you. I still have plans for you. Great, great theme for the retreat. Because we all need to hear that sometimes. Well, we all feel that way sometimes, don't we? Abandoned by God? Forsaken, forgotten? God, where are you? Where did, where did you go? Why, why can't I hear you right now? And we all, we all feel that way from time to time, so we all need the reminder from time to time, he's still there. God isn't going anywhere ever. He's still there. His love for us has not diminished, will not diminish. His power, his ability to love us has not diminished, cannot diminish. And even if we're not perceiving him the same way, He's still present. He's still fighting for us. He's still working in us. I almost took that as a theme, uh, as, as, a, as a direction for Sunday, for Resurrection Sunday. Hope when things seem hopeless. I was noodling that idea around for like three weeks. I was going to start with Jesus on the cross. I was going to start Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and I was going to point out something we often point out on Good Friday, but sometimes look past on Easter Sunday when Jesus says that he's not asking a question, right? He's actually declaring an answer. When things seem hopeless for Jesus, what is Jesus doing? He's pointing to prophecy. 
and, and with the few words that he could gasp out. He was reminding those, those watching, what you're seeing, what's happening, is a fulfillment of prophecy. And if Psalm 22 and the prophecies in Psalm 22, the prophecies of crucifixion and the, the soldiers gambling for his garments and so forth, if those prophecies are being fulfilled, guess what? The prophecy that I gave you, that I would be resurrected in three days, that will also be fulfilled. When things seem hopeless, God is still there. Except God kept nudging me to talk about why the resurrection matters. And so that was Sunday, and the, the, the thoughts that I put together about hope, well, they ended up at the end of the message instead of the beginning of the message. But, but it's never a bad time to remind ourselves when things seem hopeless, God is still there. We used to, we used to sing, when I, when I can't see you, I know you're near. When I can't feel you, I'll, I'll trust in you, I will not be afraid. It's all true. We may not sing the song as much anymore, but it's still true. It's also never a bad time to remind ourselves when we can't see God, when we're not experiencing God the same way. There's no one, no singular explanation for that. There's no one-size-fits-all answer for why that's happening. It may be because he's stepped back and he's asking us, trust me. Proceed on faith. Go on the basis of things that you know. For a while, I want you to, to rely on my word more than my voice. He does that sometimes. And on a pretty regular basis, I'll encounter someone who's not a brand new believer, but a new-wish believer, who's, who's gone from that, that intimacy of, of being born again and, and God almost literally holding your hand. You remember what that was like? the presence of God that was so very thick in those early days. And then God says, okay, I'm going to let you walk across the parking lot and I'm not going to hold your hand. What do you mean? Where'd you go? Dad! But God, God does that like a parent because he is a parent. He wants us, okay, remember what you know and, and proceed on the basis of, of what I've given you in your word, what you can see is true. And don't rely on feeling my presence quite so much. He does that sometimes. But more often, that, that's one explanation for, for why does God seem far away right now. More often, though, when we're not seeing him, hearing him, when he seems far away, it's because we've moved. Sometimes he distances himself. More often, it's because we've moved. We've put ourselves in a position where we've separated ourselves from God, even as believers. And that's what Israel is realizing this evening. This is what happens when I have a Bible that I haven't pre-bookmarked. Because I have to play catch-up. What chapter are we in? 59. Israel, as we turn to chapter 59 tonight, is realizing that they've put themselves far from God. Verse 1, God tells them 
That's what's happened. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is ear heavy that it cannot hear. That's always true all the time. But, God speaking to Israel, your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Obviously, he does hear. He chooses not to pay attention to what he's hearing. When someone says to me, God seems far away, my first question is, okay, did he move or did you move? I, I don't know. Okay, are you doing the things that you need to do to stay in fellowship with God? Are you in his word? Are you praying? Are you confessing sin promptly? That's one that we sometimes forget. Are you keeping short accounts with God? If not, our iniquity can separate ourselves from him. And a lot of times when I say, is it you or is it him? Are you doing what you need to do? A lot of times, most of the time, the answer that I hear is, well, I think so. Okay, you think so. How can you know so? I don't know. Well, maybe ask. God, the Holy Spirit, who convicts the world of sin, will be faithful if we seek him, if we ask him, God, search me. (laughs) What's going on in me that maybe I'm not attending to, that maybe I'm trying not to pay attention to, or maybe I've genuinely forgotten, God, is there sin in my life? Is, Is there bitterness in my heart? Ask God that question. He will delight to tell you. Ask a trusted brother or sister. Hey, can you help me figure out what's going on with me? Would you pray with me that God would show me? Is it me? Am I pushing God away? And, and, and God is speaking to Israel here in verses 1 or 2. But notice there's a principle that applies to us. Our sin can still push God away. Wait, wait, wait. I thought I was forgiven. I thought that was everything that we talked about on Good Friday and, and on Resurrection Sunday. Right, but remember... How many times in our study in Isaiah have we come back to this idea that, yes, you and I who are in Christ are forgiven judicially, but there still might be relational business that needs to be taken care of. God will sometimes wait for us to acknowledge we have sinned against him, even as believers. We're forgiven, but just like parents, when when your kids mess up, You know that you're going to forgive them. You know it's going to be okay. But you still require them to confess, to say I was wrong, to say what they did that was wrong, and and to at least profess to feel bad about it. Now, Israel's situation was more than that, of course. Their guilt was not just relational. It was, in fact, judicial. Their guilt at this point is still legal. Why? They haven't obeyed the gospel. What's the gospel? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a philosophy to be agreed with. It's a commandment to be obeyed. And at the end of the tribulation even, they still have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. When they do, they're saved. Until then... Their distance from God. His chastisement is upon them. Which which means, just 
on the way to getting where we're going before we leave the subject of Good Friday and, and Resurrection Sunday altogether. You realize that on the cross, Jesus died for the sins of Israel? That when Jesus, Good Friday, we looked at his seven statements on the cross, when Jesus says, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. We, we tend to look very immediately because he's on the cross, he's between the thieves. And we, we tend to be very myopic and say, well, he was talking about the Roman soldiers who were scourging him, driving that crown of thorns into his skull, nailing him. And, and, and certainly, certainly they were included in that statement. But we can certainly take it more broadly. Because why were the Roman soldiers doing what they were doing? Because the leaders of Israel conspired to make it so. They, they, they pulled down all the stops to, to force Pilate's hand so that he would order Jesus scourged and crucified. Jesus on the cross was also speaking of Israel. Forgive them. They know not what they do. They should have. They should have known the day of their visitation. They did not. But on the cross, Jesus was dying for the sins of the soldiers driving the nails. And he was dying for the sins of Israel who handed him over to those soldiers. Sometime when you run out of things to pray for, thank God for Israel and for the lessons that we have available for the learning, for the example, because they didn't recognize their Messiah. Anyway, we need to pick up the pace. God, verses 1 and 2, says to Israel, it's, it's not me, it's you. Yeah, we're, there's distance between us, it's you. Your sins have created that separation. What sins? For your hands are defiled with blood, still God speaking, and your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue has muttered perversity. No one calls for justice, nor does anyone plead for truth. They trust in empty lies and, or empty words and speak lies. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. They hatch vipers' eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies, and from that which is crushed, a viper breaks out. Their webs will not become garments, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and the act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, wasting and destruction are in their paths. Okay, that's a lot. And, and, and just for the sake of picking up the pace, let's, let's stay overview. Verse 3, God says, your sin has thoroughly corrupted you. It's not superficial. It's, it's deep down. You're rotten through and through. And verse 4, it's not accidental. You didn't stumble into this. You plotted it. You planned it. You schemed it. You did it knowingly. And verse 5, God says, and you continued even as you saw the consequences. You kept sinning even as you saw the result. In fact, you were delighted at the result. Other people were hurt by what you chose, and you were okay with that. Verse 6, verse 6 gets cryptic, but I think the idea is that a web exists purely to trap prey. There's nothing about a web that's productive. You can't take a web and make clothing out of it. There's nothing that you can, you can eat from it. You can't sell it. It's just an entanglement. 
that, that drags us down, but for the spider, it, it, he destroys and consumes that which is caught in the web. Verse 7, the, the innocent are being hurt here. That's the product of your sin. The innocent suffer. Paul quotes this. Think back to our study in Romans. Paul quotes this in Romans 3.15. And he quotes it to illustrate not the history of Israel, but the nature of humanity. Paul broadens this and says this isn't just Israel being Israel. This is people being people. This is our nature. Paul back in Romans 3 is saying what? We're natural born sinners. And the result, verse 8, the way of peace they have not known. And there is no justice in their ways. They've made themselves crooked paths. Whoever takes that way shall not know peace. We're not born into peace. Paul didn't quote verse 8, but I think in quoting it, he's kind of referencing verse 8 because the Holy Spirit here in verse 8 is still talking about the nature of humanity as manifested by Israel. Not born into peace. Not born into a situation where where justice is the natural outcome. Born into a situation where the harder we try, the behinder we get. The harder we try, the, the more crooked things become. And where we not only go astray ourselves, but lead others astray. Sin begets sin. Leaven leavens. And that's all of us, right? That's, that's humanity, not just Israel. But back to talking about what we're talking about, not, not Israel. It's true for all of humanity, of which Israel is a subset. Remember, why did God call, call Israel to be Israel? He called a nation unto himself and gave them the law, but what was the purpose of the law? To demonstrate we can't keep the law. God gave Israel every opportunity, every advantage, all possible favor. And even with the law and the prophets, even with the temple, and for a time the presence of the Shekinah glory, the corrupt, sinful nature of man asserted itself anyway. You're rotten. God says, verses 1 to 8. You want to know why there's a thing between us? Look in the mirror. Now pause for a moment. The Holy Spirit is describing sin and sinfulness in verses 1 through 8. But hasn't identified the specific sin. If we wanted to pin it down, what sin is the Holy Spirit describing? Be careful. Be careful, because you kind of have to go for a two-part answer. In Isaiah's time, because Isaiah was speaking both short-term and long-term, in Isaiah's time, what was Israel's national sin? Idolatry. There's the sin that they just couldn't let go of. From the time it was introduced, from the time Solomon started importing brides, idolatry. What about in Jesus' time? Also idolatry. Now, they didn't bring idol worship back from Babylon in the, in the, in the sense that, that, that they took to Babylon, because that was part of the reason for the Babylonian captivity, right? 
That was the purpose, part of the purpose of the exile was God purging them of that idolatry. And in that sense, the exile worked. It served its intended function. Never again did Israel worship Baal, Moloch, all of those other idols. But in the time of Jesus, Israel was nonetheless guilty of a different idolatry, weren't they? Their leaders especially. Ministry, ministry at the temple, their worship of God had actually become an idol. Look how faithful we are to observe the Sabbath. Look how faithful we are to tithe, even on the mint and the cumin. Yeah, they were faithful to observe all kinds of stuff. How about their motives? They stinketh, says God. Their motive was pride. Their motive was self-righteousness. Their motive was works righteousness. Their motive was, look at us! Worship is supposed to draw us closer to God. Their worship in Jesus' day was separating them from God. Why? Because of their hearts. We need to be careful because we speak of the sin of Israel and we automatically go to, they rejected their Messiah. And that's not wrong, but the rejection of Jesus didn't come from nowhere, did it? Why did Israel reject Messiah? Because they were wise in their own eyes. They didn't think they needed to be saved from sin. All they needed to be saved from, in their perspective, was the Romans. So so did they reject Jesus? They did. Why did they reject Jesus? Because they were already lifted up in their hearts. The sinful heart had a sinful result. And, and, And that's the way it will be. That's the only way it can be, really. Until what? Repentance. That's what it was for you and I. Garbage in, garbage out, right? The the sponge analogy. What what oozes out when you put pressure on a sponge? Whatever the sponge is soaked up. Uh, A sponge that's full of yuck is going to ooze out yuck. A a heart that's full of sin is going to ooze out sin under pressure. That's the only thing that's possible for any of us, Israel included, until we repent. And verse 9, we hear prophetically Israel's repentance. Verse 9, notice there's a shift in subject, shift of pronoun. It's no longer God speaking to Israel. Verse 9, this is Israel speaking to God. Therefore, justice is far from us. See, that can't be God because God is justice. Nor does righteousness overtake us. We look for light, but there's darkness. We look for brightness, but we walk in blackness. Verse 9, the short version, you're right. God, you nailed it. Everything you've been saying about us, verses 1 through 8, it's nothing but true. Verse 10, we grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as in twilight, whereas dead men in desolate places. Guys from the Monday night study, what, what's resonating for you right now? That's First John territory, right? Where John equates light with God and with truth, and he equates darkness with sin and sinfulness. Verse 10, Israel is saying, we're spiritually blind. We're in the dark. 
and were dead men walking. Verse 11, we all growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We look for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it's far from us. Israel had boasted loudly of its righteousness, still does today. But to what end? They're saying that all of our righteousness, all of our self-righteousness, is that translating into justice? No, Israel knows no justice. Is it translating into salvation? No, not even a little bit. And Israel is recognizing this and acknowledging it before God. Saying to God, yeah, we haven't missed an opportunity to get it wrong. (laughs) We growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. Maybe you've encountered this. People who are loud and aggressive about the things of God. Their knowledge of God, their theological insight, their experience in ministry. They roar. Listen to all I know and to everything I've done. What's wrong with that picture? And I say that as somebody who used to do it. Before I was saved, I, uh, I worked in the, in the Christian camping, or I had customers in the Christian camping industry. This is back when I was building ropes courses and climbing towers and stuff like that. And I had a whole list of Bible verses that I would go in, and when I would go to a Salvation Army camp or a Methodist camp or whatever, I had all kinds of verses that I would, I would throw out there so that they would think I was one of them. And I, I, would, I would flex all of my scriptural knowledge. I'm, they, they, I'm sure they looked right through me. I'm sure I was pathetic and sad. And, but, but the thing is, 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 it's not just unsaved people who do that. It, it can be mature people in the faith, insecure people in the faith. But, but wherever it comes from, what do we expect from a, a mature believer? The opposite of roaring like a bear. Even, even the opposite of, of, of mourning like a dove. Humility is what we expect from the mature believer. Humility, not thinking less of oneself, but thinking of oneself less. And calling attention to oneself less. Whether as a bear or a, oh, I'm just a wretched little bird. I'm probably going to get stepped on. No, we don't call attention to ourselves. Why? It's our mission to call attention to Jesus. Verse 12, Israel bottom lines things with God. And I love this. For our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us as for our iniquities, we know them. A good confession confesses. None of this general hypothetical foo-foo inferential stuff. Concrete and specific. I have sinned and this is what I've sinned. Not Lord, if I've sinned, I hope that you'll forgive me. If I've done anything that... No, no, no. I've sinned. And these are my sins. And they're wrong. And they're offensive. We've, verse 12, Israel says, God, we've been faking it. We're like, we're like the ones that Paul talks about in 2 Timothy 3. Having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. We've been faking it. We've been bluffing. We've been bluffing ourselves. And it was wrong. It was wrong because it sins against you. It wrong because it's hurt other people 
verse 13, because sin always does. In transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood, justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off, for truth has fallen in the streets and equity cannot enter. When we sin against God, we hurt other people. When we sin against people, we hurt God. Two great commandments. Love God, love people. They're intertwined. They're interconnected. They can't be separated. To not love others is to reject God and God's teaching, right? And to reject God is to not love others because why would we apart from God? How could we apart from God? And and, and so Israel is not being what Israel is called to be. They're not doing what Israel is called to do. Israel is called to be a nation of worshipers and a nation of, of disciples and a nation of evangelists. Instead, they're saying, you know what? We've been a nation turned inward. We've been one Jewish holy huddle. Our focus hasn't been upward. Our focus hasn't been outward. Our focus has been Inward, everyone for themselves. And anyone looking could tell. Justice turned back, righteousness afar off, truth fallen in the street. Things got so bad that those actually wanting to worship God, the outliers, the minority, that said, well, I still want to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were persecuted. They became a target. Truth fails, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Well, it's not hard to see the church in those verses, right? Not interpretation, because this isn't about us, but application. Like when, when Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, I think it's verse 5, those having a form of godliness but denying the, the power thereof, he's talking about false teachers. He's talking about people in the church, corrupting the church. And in our day, it's not just a person here and there within a a, a particular fellowship, a particular body. It's whole churches, whole church movements corrupting the body of Christ as, as fewer and fewer churches point to the living God, point to the truth, point to the gospel. Increasingly, those churches are making themselves a target, right? Caleb over in Youth Tonight is starting the book of Galatians. And and a few verses into Galatians chapter 1, if you recall from when we were there a few years ago, Paul says, hey, anyone who's preaching a false gospel, let him be accursed. And just pondering the weight of that is, 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 is worth some time and energy. But, but Caleb, I said, I said what are you, how are you going to take that with the youth? He said, he said I'm, I'm going to see how many false gospels we can name. You know, the, 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 the gospel of, of he's a good person, the gospel of self-esteem, the gospel of prosperity, the gospel of poverty, gospel of social justice, of wokeness, of nationalism, of universalism. And, and, and those, those who adhere to any one of those false gospels Look at you and me, and, and, and they, they paint a target on us. We're the enemy. We're a threat to their belief. And we become, as they become powerful, because they are, 
we become prey. Back to the text. Verses 1 through 8. Let's, 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 let's start heading for a finish line. Verses 1 through 8, God says, I didn't move, you moved. I didn't reject you, you rejected me. Verses 9 through the first half of 15, Israel says, we know. We were wrong and we have no excuse. They don't say, we were wrong, but... They just said, no, we were wrong. It's a really good confession. God's response, now this is God talking in verse 15, the second part, then the Lord saw it and it displeased him. He saw that there was no man. He wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him and in his own righteousness, it sustained him. We've been bouncing out to, to application as we go. Usually in Isaiah, we lead application to the end and because, because just going verse by verse is a heavy lift, but I'm tired. So um, we've been bouncing back to, to application. But it's, it's, it's important as we head to the finish tonight. Let's be clear about what we're talking about, what, what the Holy Spirit is talking about. This is Israel at the end of the tribulation. Yes, they were, they were sinful. This describes their sinfulness in the days leading up to Christ. That's true. But it equally describes Israel's sinfulness in the days leading up to Antichrist. That's really important to understand because if we don't see that, we don't see then in the, second part, in the first part of verse 15, what do we know happens at the end of the tribulation? There's a believing remnant that turns to God that's convicted and confesses and professes Christ. There's a believing remnant that puts their trust in Jesus and calls upon his name. Jesus said, you'll see me no more until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. At the end of the tribulation, there are those who say it was him and we killed him. And we were self-righteous about it. But that believing remnant at that moment is what? Verse 15, the first part, pray. Antichrist has set their, his sights on them. He's determined that they're not going to pray. Because perhaps in his dementia, if they don't pray and call upon the name of the Lord, maybe Jesus never returns, and maybe Antichrist keep, gets to keep running the earth. But God says, I'm going to send a rescuer. I'm going to send a redeemer. Verse 17, we see the redeemer suiting up. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. How many times have you studied the armor of God passage in Ephesians and not realized that it traces back? And I get that there are some differences, and those differences are significant. We don't get to put on vengeance is one of the chief differences. But, but notice, Paul's exhortation, did I say Ephesians 5? Ephesians 6 is what I meant. Paul's exhortation in Ephesians 6, he's encouraging us when he says, put on the whole armor of God, he's encouraging us to Christ-likeness as seen in verse 17. Because this is Jesus we're talking about, right? Now, there's people who go deep into verse 17 and say he, there are two kinds of garments there because he's coming back with salvation for Israel but vengeance for the nations and he's got two kinds of garments. And that, that, that's, that's fine. I think that that's true. 
we don't need that to, to know that the bottom line is clear. Yeah, he's coming in defense of Israel. He's coming to judge the nations. Verse 18, according to their deeds, accordingly he will repay fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. The coastlands he'll fully repay. That's sobering. It's sobering just in general to think about Jesus handing out recompense. Jesus returning with vengeance in judgment. It's also sobering because if you insist on seeing the United States in prophecy, I think you're wrong. I, I don't think the United States appears in prophecy. But if you're bound and determined to read us in there somewhere, who are we? We're the coastlands. <laughs> and this, this, doesn't, this doesn't bode well. Verse 18, Jesus returns to fight on behalf of Israel. The result, verse 19, so shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. We'll talk more in the next couple of weeks about the choreography of Jesus' return, the order of, of operations. But we get the gist, right? From 30,000 feet, we see the big picture. The enemy, the army of Antichrist, coming in like a flood. We've seen that idiom before in Isaiah, uh, especially with regard to the Assyrian army in the first half of the book. The Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. Who's him? Antichrist. Antichrist's army comes in like a flood against the remnant, and Jesus wars with them, repels them, defeats them, destroys them. Verse 20, once again, God speaking, the Redeemer will come to Zion. The Redeemer, the arm, the servant, the Messiah. And to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. As for me, says the Lord, verse 21, this is my covenant with them. And this is a consolidated form of what we read later in Jeremiah 31, the new covenant, right? This is my covenant with them. My spirit who is upon you and my words which I put in your mouth, which shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your descendants, nor from the mouth of your descendants' descendants, says the Lord from this time and forevermore. My words will not depart. They will remain. My servant, my arm, your Messiah will remain teaching, ruling, and receiving worship, true worship, heart worship. And where we, where we end is where we started. Is this us today? Treasuring his word. Giving God true worship. Living in intimacy with him. Or are we, verse 2, in that place where our iniquities have separated us from him? Because they can. We don't lose our salvation. Can we lose fellowship? Yeah, absolutely we can. We do. And when we do, our answer is also in verse 12. Our answer is to confess our sin, because when we do, he's faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We can push God away. And when we do, our worship gets hollow, our ministry gets feeble. Our prayers seem like they bounce off the ceiling. 
And our relationship with God becomes something very different than what he intends, than what he desires. Instead of overflowing, it dries up. And if we don't deal with that pretty quickly, we're looking for things to substitute for it, looking for idols. How interesting that was our last song before the message. Lord, I cast down my idols. That's not just something we do when we come to Christ. That's something that we have to do again and again as we walk with Christ. That's sanctification. God's showing us, here's another layer. Here's here's another place of reliance. Here's something else you're depending on. Here's something else that you're placing importance in, finding identity in. Something else to cast down. And as we do, when we do, we realize God was never far away. God's always been available, always waiting, always pointing, always saying, just just this, always convicting, faithfully reminding. And when we call upon his name, his great delight His great pleasure is to dwell richly among us, pouring out his love and receiving our praise. Lord, thank you for thank you for Israel. We learn so much from them. Forgive us for those times that we condescend, that we point fingers that we feel smug and superior. (laughs) Because in those times, we're doing exactly what they did. (laughs) We're proving that we're no different. Lord, thank you for the example and and for the, the teaching, the illustration, the exhortation that comes from it. Holy Spirit, plant that lesson deep in our hearts. Feed it and water it. That as we yield to you, as we soak deep in your word and in your spirit, that we would bear much fruit.